really appreciate you being here. I'm going to talk about uh, how we're going to set some things up tonight in just a moment. But before we do that, let's go ahead and have a word of prayer together. Let's pray. Almighty God, we are so thankful, Father, to be able to be together in this place, in this room as your people, uh, to study a sermon preached by Jesus Christ, your Son. We pray, Father, that you will bless us as we begin this study tonight, that you will be glorified and honored by the things we discuss and that we can learn some things that can change us and mold us and shape us and to be the kind of people you called us to be. We pray, we pray for all of our Bible class teachers and all of our young people tonight. We pray, Father, that you would just be with us and that you will be glorified in our efforts. In Jesus' name, amen. We go in your Bible, please, to Matthew, the fifth chapter. Might as well get comfortable there. Thank you, Ryan. I may want to sit down every now and then, so I asked Ryan to get me a, a stool also. Thank you. Matthew, chapter 5. Matthew, the fifth chapter. We're going to start reading with verse number 1. In Matthew, the fifth chapter, and verse 1, the Scripture says, When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. He opened his mouth and began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad for your reward in heaven is great, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. These words I just read right here mark the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is the greatest sermon ever preached, and it is preached by the greatest preacher. Out of all of the words ever penned on paper, none, none top these words. None top what you find here. Paul didn't preach a greater sermon than Jesus did. Peter didn't. James and John didn't. Our Declaration of Independence, which is a great document, it does not even it is not even superior to what you find here. What you find here on the pages of your Bible is in fact the greatest sermon ever preached in the history of the world. It is the greatest sermon because it is preached by the greatest preacher. As Jesus predicted, and another thing that makes this sermon so great is it has stood the test of time. Again, the Declaration of Independence is in fact a great document, but it won't stand the test of time. There will come a time when it will become irrelevant, when it won't be enforced anymore, when people won't respect it as much. But Jesus' words have stood the test of time, and they will always stand the test of time. Jesus' words will stand even when this world is no more, when the earth is destroyed and burned up. Guess what? The Sermon on the Mount will still stand. It will still be the standard. In fact, it is going to be part of the standard by which we are going to be judged on the judgment day. 
That's how significant this sermon is. And this sermon, at least in Matthew's Gospel, takes up three chapters. Do you see that? Three chapters in your Bible make up the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to be studying the Sermon on the Mount for the next several weeks. Brother Rick and I are going to be teaching this, teaching this together. I'm going to spend the first class hopefully trying to set up some things. But i got to go out of town for a couple of days or for a few days. i got to go to Florida uh, this weekend. And so Brother Rick is going to teach uh, this coming Sunday. He's going to teach next Wednesday. And he's going to teach for a couple of weeks in March also because my meeting schedule is about to start picking up. So I'll be gone for a couple of weeks in March also. But I'm going to try to do my best to set this class up uh, tonight. Now before we set up exactly what Jesus is saying here in the beginning of this chapter, I want to begin by asking you a few questions, and I want you to help me with this. So listen carefully to the questions. And by the way, hopefully you have a workbook. You want to bring that workbook with you to class. There are questions in there for you to consider as you study at home. Uh, I have some summary stuff in there, some information in there, but I also hope that you will come to class each time prepared and ready to have this good discussion in, in the class. So here's my question as we start here. I want you to think about these things before you answer them out loud. And this is one of the questions actually in your workbook too. What do you expect to get out of a study of this sermon? And what ways do you want to be challenged? How do you want to be challenged? By studying the Sermon on the Mount. What do you expect to get out of it? Someone who wants to start us off here. Who wants to start us? Brother Ryan, go ahead, sir. To be a more effective teacher. Want to be a more effective teacher. It's a good good goal to have. And what better place to learn that from than the master teacher, who is Jesus Christ. So Brother Ryan says he hopes to, in the next few weeks to be a, become a better teacher. Be changed in that way. Very good. Anyone else? Yes, sir, Mark. You want to get all you can, you want to get all you can get out of it. I think that's a goal we all need to have. There's a lot of layers to this sermon, a lot of meat on this bone, and we want to try to get as much as we can off of it. That's a good goal. Anyone else? How, what do you expect to get out of this, brother Rick? Yes, sir. To kind of improve my character if I can. Oh, I love that. I love that. You want to you want to be changed as a person. You want your character to be changed. I can even say it this way, Rick, if you're okay with it. How about being even changed as a disciple? Become a better disciple. Let's talk about that a little bit because what Rick is saying there is exactly where I think we need to go here. This sermon here is about a few different things that Brother Rick and I are going to try to dive into. First, this sermon is about discipleship. Have you noticed that as you've studied this? This sermon is all about discipleship. Now let me ask a question here and I want your help. Because the word disciple is not a word we use enough, I don't believe, as members of the church today. I don't think we use this word enough. And so somebody tell it to me. Well, what does it mean? Maybe we don't use it because we don't really know what it means. Well, what does it mean to be a disciple? Anybody got an answer to that? Brother Mark, what's a disciple? <clears throat> So you think about the word discipline when you think about disciple. Someone else, that's good. Someone else. What's a disciple? Yes, ma'am, Sister Jane. What was that? A learner. Yes, a learner. A learner. You, if you don't have that on your, in your paper, you need to write that word in there. Disciple learns. And, and who do they learn from? Who does the disciple learn from? His what? Teacher. His teacher. And Jesus makes that point in the gospel at times. Remember, Jesus says... It is enough for the disciple 
to become like the teacher. The student must become like the master. And so we are students. We are disciples. And our goal should be to become like the master, Jesus. That should be our goal. And so this sermon is about discipleship. Now, the word we use more today is the word Christian. We love the word Christian. And don't get me wrong. The word Christian is a biblical word. But it's not found in the Bible often. You know, it's only found three times in your Bible? Only three times. But that word disciple, it is found dozens and dozens and dozens of times. It is a word that Jesus used more than, than anything else. In fact, it is interesting how the word Jesus gave his people in his ministry is disciple. But when you look at Christian in the New Testament, when the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch, it appears that the word Christian actually may have started by people in that society. People looking at those folks over there in Antioch who were disciples and saying, oh, those are those Christ people. Those are those Christians. The word Christian may have started from the people in the society, the world in which disciples lived in. They looked at them and said, oh, there are those Christ people over there. They're Christians. They may have even been using it in a derogatory and mocking kind of way. But Jesus... Jesus called his people disciples. That comes straight from the mouth of Jesus. And Jesus has a lot to say about, about discipleship. Uh, Brother Dunn, go ahead, sir. A lot of people make a mistake when they look at the Great Commission. Oh, we've got to go out there and baptize people. No, that's not what Jesus said. Right. Make them learners. Let them learn what to do. And as they learn, then they will be changed into what I want them to be. That's an excellent point. Jesus, before going to heaven said, I want you to make people disciples. And you make people disciples by teaching them and by baptizing them. And they become learners, students of the Master. And that's what Jesus wants. You know, so often we get so wrapped up in numbers and getting people to the baptistry. But it's not enough to get people to the baptistry if they don't become disciples. And I fear that in the church today, we don't have enough disciples. We may have a lot of Christians. we got people who are Christians who are wearing the name of Christ but they're not disciples. They're not really being what Jesus wants them to be and being like Jesus. And Jesus wants disciples. And so this sermon, I want you to watch for this, okay? As you study this sermon, it's about discipleship. If you want to become a better disciple like Rick is saying, this sermon is for you. Secondly, though, this sermon is about the kingdom of God. A lot about the kingdom of God. And Jesus talks a lot about the kingdom of God. Now, this sermon is going to hopefully expand our minds on what the kingdom of God is. Because so often, as members of the church again, we have a very limited thinking within what the kingdom of God is. So often we think the kingdom of God is only in the scriptures used to refer to what? That's not enough. Not enough. Don't get me wrong. Is the church the kingdom? Oh, sure it is. But that's not enough. That, that, that's not a fully mature way of looking at it. Because when you get to passages like Matthew 6 and verse 33... Where Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. And then all these things will be added to you. And if your thinking is, well, every time I see kingdom, it's church. Well, when you get to that verse, you're going to struggle a little bit. Because <laughs> Jesus says, seek first the church? No! No, that's not what Jesus means there. We're going to see from this sermon that when Jesus talks about the kingdom, the kingdom of God, He's talking about God's rule. He's talking about God's rule in your life as an individual. 
He's talking about God's rule in your heart. Because Jesus even said in His ministry that the kingdom of God is in, is in your heart. It's within you, He said. Is the church within you? No. He's talking about God's rule should be in your heart. The problem in our society today is many people don't want to submit to God's rule. They don't want God to tell them what to do. They don't want God to tell them how to live their life. They want to live how they want to live. Well, Jesus says, if you want to be saved, if you want to become a disciple, you got to seek first God's rule. you got to understand that God has the right to tell you what to do, and you are obligated to submit to Him. And so this sermon will hopefully expand our thinking over the next few weeks on what the kingdom of God is. But then a third thing this sermon is about, and i got to emphasize it, is the heart. Your heart. Your heart is a big part of who you are as a disciple. This sermon, and I really want it, I'm going to be driving this home over the next few weeks. This sermon is a powerful contrast between the corrupt hearts of the religious leaders of Jesus' day and the kind of hearts God wants His people to have. That's what this sermon is. And here are some key passages to show you. In Matthew, the fifth chapter, in Matthew chapter 5, and look at verse number 17, Jesus says, and, and, and I would submit that these verses I'm going to read to you are really the key verses of the sermon. These are the thesis verses. This is what the sermon is about mostly. Jesus says, and I think, Matthew 5, 17, that I came to abolish the law of the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but fulfill. Now, we're going to talk about what that means in the next few weeks. But Jesus goes on to say, truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is fulfilled. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments, he's talking about the law of Moses here, and teaches others to do the same, should be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them, he should be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus is serious about keeping the law. The law is in force at this time. But here's the key verse. This is your verse. For I say to you, that unless your righteousness exceeds or surpasses the righteousness or that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter into the kingdom of heaven. That verse is what this sermon is about. This sermon is all about developing righteousness that exceeds the righteousness of the corrupt religious leaders at this time. From here on, Jesus is going to show us, starting in verse 21, as early as verse 21, Jesus is going to show us what righteousness looks like that exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees. That's what the sermon is about. So verse 20 is a verse we really need to really understand. We're going to be talking a lot about that verse. Okay, so let me ask another question here. And this is in your workbook. What parts of this sermon, as you've studied it over the course of your life, over the last few years, or maybe if you just read it for the first time recently, what parts of this sermon do you already find difficult to understand or maybe even difficult to apply or implement in your life? What parts? Sister Peggy, yes ma'am. I think the, the verses that in chapter 7 verses 1 through 6 about judging. Yeah, that's a very relevant one. Why did you pick that one? You know, why did you pick that one? Well, I, it's so easy to look at other people and say, oh, I can see that that's what they're doing wrong, but 
when you apply that to yourself first, there's just as many things that I do that people could look at me and say, Yes. So I think. No, that, that, and, and what you said is what those verses are about. Looking at yourself first. And isn't that hard to do? It is hard to look at yourself in the mirror. And, and, and look at yourself for who you truly are and your own faults and your own sins and problems. And, you know, so often we go to these verses and we, so we focus on how our society misuses them. But what we need to do first is go to the verses and see what they really mean and apply them to ourselves. Because that's the hard part. For me to say, hey, before I start looking at you, what's my issue? So that's good, Sister Peggy. Anyone else have something? What parts of this sermon do you already find difficult to understand or implement? Brother Ryan. Can I just add to her? Yes, please. <laughs> I have put the yes. same thing down. It's, it's by my standard, or by where it says by your standard, that's the problem. <laughs> it's, not, it's, it's not using God's standard. And, you know, it's okay for us to write ourselves off. But it's harder for me to write somebody else off, like family members, which the expectation might be higher. Yes. And um, then again, if I'm judging by that standard, it's you need to understand, it's hard for me to understand that you're going to be judged by that same standard that you're judging that other person. Yes. From other people that see it. Yes. That's so sometimes good. it's hard to see that. No, that, that that's very good. Yeah. I like I like what both of you are saying there. That's, that's good Sorry, stuff. Sorry, I had to add to that. No, that's, that's good stuff. That's good stuff. Anyone else? Maybe one more. Uh, Brother Don, yes sir. I'm reminded of a one of them songs that came out of Nashville back in the 50s, 60s, somewhere back in there. That's a fun time. to be humble when you're perfect in every way. Yeah. You know? And the, our attitude toward ourselves is, I'm okay, but everybody else is something wrong with them. Yes. And when you, when you start looking at it from that standpoint, if your mindset is already there that I'm okay, what can you, what can you determine about others that is correct? You know? You know, they get rid of the beam. Yes. We're going to get to that. And that's Jesus later. using humor in his yeah. teaching that, that we'll talk about. And Jesus used a lot of humor. When you get to that point, then, you know, there's, there's the other aspect of anxiety that is in there and worrying about the things that are wrong with, with the individual and somebody else and yes. how that, that interplay. And there's... When you, when you put all of that together, it is quite a, a psychological lesson on the idea of, of being anxious about things. What are you anxious about? Is it okay to be anxious about some things and not others? Mm -hmm. You know, like the, the be angry and sin not. Right. Exactly. What what do we care about? Yes. No, that's good. I think that I think we're going to really be challenged by that section also. The worry section is a good one. Let me give you some things that I wrote down here that I think we need to think about that maybe we haven't. I, I appreciate everything you've said so far. I don't think these Beatitudes are so easy to understand as we may think they are. I really don't. I think we're going to see over the next few weeks Brother Rick's going to kick this off Sunday. These Beatitudes are very rich. And they're difficult. They are especially difficult to implement and do. And so don't look at those first few verses of Matthew 5 and say, oh, Beatitudes, no big deal. That, I got that. No. That's, that's some deep stuff. That is some deep stuff going on in those Beatitudes. And it's all spiritual. It's all spiritual. 
Secondly, the section about relationships is going to, is challenging. That's Matthew 5, 21 down to 48. Jesus is talking about relationships there and how to be a disciple in relationships. He's talking about anger. He's talking about reconciliation. And you and I both know so often we have too much pride to take the first move when it comes to reconciliation. So Jesus is challenging us there. He is saying that you don't need to wait till for somebody to come to you first whenever you got a problem with them or if they've done something to offend you. You need to go first. Don't, don't tell me that's not challenging to us. He's talking about anger. He's talking about reconciliation. He's talking about lust. He's talking about marriage and the commitment of marriage. He's talking about vow keeping and how serious lying is to God. He's talking about turning the other cheek and going two miles with somebody when they ask for one. What is all of that about? And loving your enemies? Loving people who hate you? I'm sorry. That section there in Matthew 5, 21 through 48, that's all about righteousness. That exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. That's some hard stuff there. And we're going to see that. And then another thing that's going to be challenging is this section in Matthew 6, verses 19 through 24. Matthew 6, 19 through 24, and he's talking about storing up spiritual treasures. You know, how do we do that exactly? I want to know how to do that. And I want to know what does he mean in verse 22 when he talks about the eye is the lamp of the body and my eyes got to be clear from my body to be full of light. That's, I need to, I got to dig into that. What's that all about? What does that mean? That's, there's some challenging stuff here that I think we need to really give some serious thought to. Now, here's the next thing we need to talk about. Where this sermon is recorded in a similar place. Where is this sermon? Is this the only place you find this kind of teaching in the gospel or is it somewhere else? It's in Luke. You're going to come across it in Luke 6. Now, I'm going to tell you that I think when you get to Luke 6, that's not, it's the, it looks like the same sermon and it is. But I don't think it's the same instance. I think it's a different instance. One thing preachers do is we take, we try to take good material on the road. You know what I mean? If you think the, the guys we invite here for gospel meetings are preaching new material to you, you don't know much about being a preacher. Because I, every time before them guys come, I can find all their sermons online. And I've already heard them already before they got here. I know exactly what's coming. Because God preachers don't want to take untested material on the road. You don't do that. That's a mistake. You take things on the road that you've got good feedback with at the church where you preach it, that you work with. That's what you do. And that's what I'm doing Sunday in Florida when I preach at two different churches. That's what I'm going to do next month when I go to South Carolina, Indiana. I'm not taking new material. They're going to hear everything you already heard. <laughs> They're going to hear it. They're going to hear it maybe for the first time. They had not gone online already. And that's what Jesus does with this sermon. I think Jesus takes this one on the road. I think he preaches this several times in his ministry. And so let's look at the sermon a little bit. We're just going to look at really two verses tonight. And that's the first two. We're going to set it up with the first two. That's the great thing about what we try to do with the workbook and with this class. We're going to slow down a little bit. And we're going to try to, to, to do what Mark was talking about and try to get as much off this bone as we can. Verse 1 says, the, it begins with saying Jesus saw the crowds. So look at that. Jesus saw the crowds. What is that showing you about Jesus at this time? He's become very what? Known. He's very popular. He's very known at this time. This is still early in the ministry of Jesus, but by this time he's got crowds around him. 
And we read in Luke 4 a few classes ago how he got so many people around him one time that he had to use a boat as a pulpit. Mm -hmm. So he's got the crowds around him. He's very popular, but you got to connect this back to chapter 4 and verse 23. Because in chapter 4 and verse 23, it says that Jesus was going throughout Galilee at this time. So he's at, in the beginning of his Galilean ministry. And he's teaching in synagogues. And he's proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. And he's healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among the people. Now look at verse 24. Doing this causes the news about him to spread throughout all Syria. And they brought to him all who were ill, those who were suffering with various diseases and pains and demonics and epileptics, paralytics, and he healed them. And look at verse 25. You got large crowds now. Followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis. That's Gentile territory. And Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. So Jesus has a lot of people following him at this time. And the main reason why these crowds are so big is because of his miracles. His miracles are drawing huge crowds. Uh, you know, during this time, people, a lot of people think Jesus has free health insurance. I mean, this guy can heal it. He's doing it for free. And he's doing it miraculously. So he's giving sight to the blind. He's healing lepers. And he's healing people who've never been able to walk before. People who are mute. Jesus is performing miracles. But here's the reason why he did the miracles. And you see it in the text. The reason why he's doing the miracles is to draw the crowds so he can then preach to them. That's why he's doing the miracles. Because he wants to preach. So the miracles are catching people's attention and is giving them evidence that this guy's a guy from God. We don't know exactly who he is yet, but he's got something to God, and when he talks, we need to listen. We need to listen to what he has to say. And so in Matthew 5 and verse 1, the scripture says that Jesus is taking advantage of the crowds. Taking advantage by that, I'm, what by that I mean is that he's taking advantage of the opportunity. The opportunity to teach them. The Bible says he goes on a mountain. Now that's interesting because usually in Jesus' ministry, where does he teach people at? Synagogue. He's in the synagogue. In fact, in the previous chapter, it said in verse 23 that he's going in the synagogues. Now, why is he going in the synagogues? Well, that's where the Jews are gathered most of the time. Synagogues are just religious learning centers. As I went throughout Israel, we found tons of synagogues. Usually, every town has one synagogue. And you go there to listen to the rabbis, to the religious leaders talk about spiritual things, read scripture, discuss important questions, spiritual questions. And the rabbis, the men would usually sit at the front of the synagogue. The women would sit in the back. That's how that worked. And the teacher would sit while everybody else stood up. That's how it worked in the synagogue. Now to have a synagogue, you've got to have at least 10 Jewish men. At least 10 Jewish men have to be there for there to be a synagogue. And there were synagogues all throughout Galilee. And Jesus goes to the people. He doesn't wait for them to come to him. He goes to the synagogue. Now here, he's not in a synagogue. He is on a mountain. We're going to talk about that in just a minute. But he's outside. At this time, the crowds are so big, a synagogue can't hold him. He's got to, he's got to be outside. Today, we would even say maybe he's got to be in an arena. Maybe where the sons play. That's how many people you got following Jesus. Now, the scripture talks about this mountain. When we think of mountains, we usually think of rocky mountains, stuff like that. That's not really what this is talking about. This is talking about more of a hilly 
a hilly area with a flat plain or a flat place. So you got to think of hills when you think of mountain here. Okay, think of big hills with a flat area that would enable people to sit or to gather together and listen to Jesus teach. Now, Jesus here is said to have been teaching from what position? Is he teaching from my position or a different position? He's sitting. He's sitting down. You see what the scripture says there? That's interesting. Because the position of sitting while you teach was the position that the rabbis took in the synagogue. See, when a man sat down to teach, he was recognized as a rabbi. Somebody we need to listen to. He is sitting down. Now, we don't do that in our culture. I mean, if I preach to you on Sunday sitting down, y'all probably get very offended by that. Like, we're paying him too much to be sitting down to preach. Okay? But Jesus, this is the custom at this time. The custom was that the rabbis sat and you stood and listened. So, when I, by sitting down here, you know what Jesus is doing? He is sending a signal. That even though he had no formal rabbi training, and he did not, but he still was a master teacher. He still had all the credentials, spiritual credentials of the rabbi. In fact, he, he exceeded those credentials because the scripture says that when Jesus taught, he taught as one who had what? Authority. Authority. They, had, they were blown away by that. Because the rabbis, when they taught, they usually would... Only, well, they said things, they would say, well, I learned this from my rabbi or my teacher. This rabbi <coughs> said this. This rabbi said that. They would quote other rabbis almost as much as they quoted scripture. But Jesus didn't quote other rabbis. Jesus is speaking from heaven. And Jesus is telling people, you need to do this, not because I know the rabbi said so, but because I said so. He's teaching as one with authority. Now, people wonder, how could these people hear Jesus in this, in this situation? Because you've got thousands of people. He's outside and he's speaking. How are they able to hear him? Well, you don't really get to understand that until you go to Israel. Because if you go to Israel, and they actually have a designated place there where they, they call it the Mount of Beatitudes. They believe, and there's no way to know this for sure, that this is where Jesus taught the Sermon on the Mount. But that's not the thing I want to focus on. It is amazing when you go to Israel how nature provides you in certain areas with a natural sound system where you could teach from certain places in these hilly areas and your voice would project like crazy. Just, just you know, but I even have a microphone. It's better than a microphone. So that's one of the things our tour guide was telling us while we were over there is how it would have been no problem for people to hear Jesus at this time, even without a microphone, because of just the way things were arranged there with nature. It, it, it's really something that you'll, you got to see it to really understand it. So these people would have had a hard time hearing Jesus. Even if they had kids going around different places or whatever, Jesus would have been just fine. Now, Sean. Oh, yes. Yes, sir, Mike. I'm sorry. I, can't, I didn't even see you over there. Make sure you me in with the wall. Go ahead. <laughs> you know, and, and I've heard that all before. God is going to get the word out even if it has to be projected through him. Absolutely. God came down on the mountain and scared everybody. And he wasn't even doing anything. Everybody backed off and said, we can't deal with this. Moses, you go take care. You've been up there. You know who he is. You go deal with him. <clears throat> so God wants to project out so people at the very back can yes. hear me exactly what I'm saying. He'll take care of that. 
Nature can provide those things, but Jesus can also provide. Them. I, I agree with that one hundred percent. Because He wants to get. I mean, this. I, I looked at this several times, and I went back to that those verses. He's got a large group. Yes, you know, we're busting people in to come over here. Yes, we we want to get these people all over here to see Jesus. Now, what they want is some miracles. Yes, but they're going there. So He has a very large. And you said the stadium, maybe seventeen thousand. Yes. yes. Maybe more like twenty-five, thirty thousand. Could have been more than that. Because for all we know, the town was that big. Yes, and, and, and people are not just coming from towns; they're coming from all over. They're the place. coming from the air, yes. area surrounding. Yes, so, I agree. I think I those think points are well, is, well I, taken. I was going to multitudes, just yes. multitudes. Yes, and I agree with everything you're saying. I, I just don't think these people would have had a problem hearing him, no. even without no something supernatural being done. But I think, I think your point is very well taken, Mike. I agree with you. And it's interesting. It came all in days when there was no newspaper. Yes. Yeah. No, <laughs> word of mouth. Was no social media. Yeah, the yeah. word of mouth, we, we, we don't, we kind of downplay that. But it had to have been raging throughout all yes. of that area for people to hear. Well, when you got a man doing the things Jesus did. And curiosity yes. probably drew a lot of people. Absolutely. No, that's I gotta keep going. My time is gonna run out. Don, you got something real quick. So well, my time's gonna run out. Gerizim, Joshua is out there, and then you had Israel. What several million people yes. at the time? And between those two hills, it was thunderous. Yes. Yes. Sometimes you don't need technology. Sometimes you just need God, and He gets it out. Now, a couple other things we need to hit at real quick, and I really appreciate your participation. I want, I want to give Rick the opportunity Sunday to really start with the Beatitudes. So, as Jesus begins this sermon, he announces eight, nine, but I think technically eight, um, Beatitudes. I think the last two kind of connect together. And Beatitudes, now we call them Beatitudes, and the reason we call them that, I think it's a good explanation for it, they are qualities that must be in us. Okay? They must be in us. The Beatitudes are extremely powerful, and they made a powerful impression on the early Christians. In fact, and I want to just kind of tell you this for bonus, when you look at the early Christian writings, we call them the church fathers, or the early writings from the early Christians. No, out of all their writings, no place is quoted more in the writings of the early Christians than the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is the most quoted portion of the New Testament in the writings of the early Christians. That's how serious they took this sermon that Matthew records here. And so as you study these Beatitudes with Rick for a couple of, couple of classes, just remember there are about qualities that need to be in us. Rick's going to really hit the first few there, but they must be in us. So let me give you some points of application real quick, and then we're going to be done. Here's some things I want you to watch for over the next few weeks as far as application goes from this sermon. First, from this sermon, I hope you will remember and take away that it's about disciples being different. We're different. We, we, we get our morality from a different place than the world does. We get our, our cue as far as decisions go, not from the world. Not from government, not from society, culture. We get it from Jesus. Jesus here is laying down a moral standard 
And he is saying that if you follow what I'm telling you here, you're going to be different. You're not going to be like your culture. You're not going to be like your society. You're going to stand out. So this sermon is about changing us. It's about making us different. And if we're going to be different, like Jesus says, then this is where we got to start. We've got to start with this sermon. Because this sermon is counterculture. It's counterculture. Secondly, from this in the next few weeks, especially the next couple of classes, I hope you can see that there are blessings that come with following Jesus. There are blessings. That's what you find with the Beatitudes. Each one starts with the word what? Blessed. Now the word blessed, you know, so often we say that word means happy. Uh, no. You know, when we think of happy today, usually in our society we're thinking about what makes me happy, right? I, I should be happy. God wants me to be happy. That's what we say. See, that's not what this is about. The, when the word blessed is used here, when Jesus says blessed is this, blessed is that, he's talking about finding favor with God. If you want favor with God, not your own personal happiness that you may be thinking is a, you know, the main thing in life. No, if you want favor with God, if you want spiritual peace, if you want a relationship with God, then do what I say Jesus says. You will find favor with God if you do this, this, this. If you get this in your heart, you will find favor with God. That's what Jesus means when he says blessed here. He's talking about favor with God. Thirdly, Thirdly, finally, I want you to take away from for the from the next few for the next few weeks from this these studies that you can do this. You can do this stuff. This sermon is great because everything in it you can do. You don't need to be a rabbi. You don't need to have a bunch of PhDs. You don't need to know Greek and Hebrew. You just need to do it. Just do what Jesus says. Women can do this. Men can do it. Young, seasoned, every disciple can do this. Now, I'm going to be honest with you, doing this is not going to be easy. We're going to study some things over the next few weeks that's going to be hard. There's some hard stuff here. There's some hard things Jesus has to say here about marriage. There's some hard things he talks about with loving your neighbor and your enemy. There's some hard things he says here with, with, you know, turning the other cheek and making sure that when you do religious things, your motives are right. You're not doing it to be seen by men. There's some hard stuff in this sermon. But I want you to remember this. You can do it. You can do what this sermon says. And that's what we're talking about this year as a church. And we're talking about getting to work, hands to the plow. Well, hey, this is a great study for us to have for that thing because if you want to every day in your life, if you want to be what Jesus wants you to be, put this sermon in place. You can do this Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. This sermon needs to be your life every day. And you can do it starting right now. So, disciples are different. There are blessings with following Jesus. And you can do this stuff. But it's going to be hard. And it's not going to be for the lazy and the people who really don't care. Okay, so that's the intro there. I tried to set up some things with an intro. Uh, Brother Rick is going to start with Lesson 2 in your book on Sunday. And I'm looking forward to it. I'm excited about it. I think we're going to be changed by this. 
And I really appreciate y'all being in the class. Thank you so much. Let's stop right there.